Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And we're resuming our series, or continuing from last week, a look into the end of Luke chapter 9, where we see distinct challenges to our faith. That is to say that throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've seen a steady rise and expansion of the revelation of the power of Jesus Christ. And then after his transfiguration, when he comes down from the mountain... There begins a series of challenges or of frictions that occur between Jesus and different individuals or crowds that are in his life. And last week, if you you didn't watch last week, I encourage you to go back and watch last week. We talked about how there was a friction between good intention and simple intention or between trying to decide what we think the will of God is and do it versus seeking him first in all that we do. And so we had the scribes arguing with the disciples and the disciples unable to cast out a very potent demon that was damaging a young boy to a great degree, even causing him to throw himself into fires. This week, we pick up the story with the second of those challenges to our faith Beginning at the end of verse 43, it says, While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Last week, we focused on the notion of trying to ascertain the will of God and do it ourselves instead of seeking first after God. This week, we're going to look at a particular kind of fear which represents a very serious challenge to our faith, which is a fear of the revealed will of God for our lives. You see, a lot of us say we want to do whatever God wants us to do, or we want to hear whatever God wants to say to us. But then when he actually tells us what to do, either by his word or by some special revelation or by the leadership of the church encouraging you to take up a challenge or a calling in your life, or whenever he speaks a word to you about your life from his word, Our own fears cause us to not listen, to not investigate, to not pursue, to not walk down the path which God has laid out before us. I mean, really think about it. How many times in your life have you known or thought that you knew the thing that you ought to do, but you didn't do it? And how often was that related to fear? 
You see, a lot of us fantasize. I don't know if you ever fantasize about being the hero, right? I mean, I remember when there was a church shooting down in Texas. It was a disastrous moment. Many people killed by a man with a long rifle. And a lot of people told me, I'll, I'll be ready. I, I would be the one to stand up and shoot back. I'd tackle the guy, I'd take him out, I'd do whatever was necessary. But don't you know that the will of God is already to go out and save the dying by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? You don't have to wait for that purported hero moment to be the hero of the faith that God has called you to be. You see, the fear that we have of being neglected, cast out, or ignored because of the gospel of Jesus ends up being a fear that's more operative in our life than the fear of guns or of violence or of bullets. It's easier for us to say, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to do the right thing in a time of battle or in a time of war than it is to say, I'm going to do the right thing, but people aren't going to like me very much because of it. That's pretty hard to do, isn't it? There's two sides to this fear. Okay, you ready? Side number one is we're afraid to hear and listen and respond to the will of God in our life because what God has to say to us will change us. Fear number two is that we're afraid that God is actually going to do in us or through us the thing that he says he's going to do. And I'm going to start with number two. Y'all remember a guy named Jonah? Y'all remember Jonah, right? I encourage you to flip back to Jonah, just a hundred pages or so back in your Bible. Jonah chapter one, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, have you ever stopped and wondered when you read Jonah 1, why would Jonah do that? Was Jonah afraid of being God's messenger? Was Jonah thinking, oh, you know, I'm unworthy, like, like uh, Moses would say to God, I, I, I'm not worthy, I can't do it, my, my mouth is too foolish, I can't speak the right words. Well, the good thing about the book of Jonah is we don't have to wonder. If you go to Jonah chapter 3, after he gets swallowed by the great fish and after he gets delivered out of the great fish, God comes back to Jonah in chapter three and he says, go to Nineveh and call out against it the message that I give you. In verse six, it says the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Now he repented. He had the whole city repent. Look in chapter 4, because this is where the question of verse 1 is revealed. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I ran away. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I know you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Relenting from disaster. Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. You see, the fear that Jonah had was that God was actually going to save people. Sometimes we're called to love people who are extremely difficult that we would rather see punished. 
We're called to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of people that we have determined are unworthy of such sacrifice. That we have put outside the bounds of salvation unto God, his kingdom. Look in verse 11, it says, there are 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. Do you know that means children and young people? And so on top of those children would be their families and their extended families and all that they were. And in this moment that should have been a glorious moment of God's salvation being poured out on a repentant city where literally everybody took up that beautiful sackcloth of repentance and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God passed over that city entirely, which should have been in that moment, a worship of thankful praise. Thank you, God, that I got to give this message was Jonah literally sitting down and saying, kill me. I don't want to see this. These people are terrible. It was a city deserving judgment. It was a city deserving the wrath and the anger of God. God had every right to wipe out that city. But the fear of seeing God actually act in a way that saved people caused Jonah to withhold God's salvation himself and run away rather than see somebody's lives actually change for the good because he had decided in his heart that they were enemies of God and therefore unworthy of being redeemed. Just imagine in your life, I mean, I'm going to go, sometimes you have to do what's called a, a reduction ad absurdium. I'm going to go to the most absurd level of this discussion. Let's, let's imagine that it's September 12th, the day after the Twin Towers fall. And you receive a calling from the Lord, affirmed by others. The voice of the Lord speaks to you and says, go unto the Taliban and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you do it? I'm going to save those people? Would you do it? No, I... You'd be terrified on two levels, right? Terrified, number one, because no, Lord, they're going to you know, kill me, right? I'm going to be a martyr. Terrified, number two, that it would actually work, right? That they would come to Jesus. We don't want that. They're our enemies. They, they killed thousands. We want to see them punished and ground into a pulp. We want to see them driven out of where they are and suffer in such a way as is unspeakable. That's our heart's inclination. That was Jonah's anger. That was his fear. I have to believe that for some of the disciples, as God's plan begins to unveil, as Jesus begins to say, I'm going to suffer, they were following him, I think a great many of them, because they thought he would lead them into a conquering position. A position of authority and leadership. In fact, just a few verses later, what were they arguing about? They were going to argue about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Is it you? Is it me? What is it? And yet here is Jesus saying that he was going to die. Let it sink into your ears that I'm going to die. 
And they were beginning to see. They were beginning to understand, but not completely. It was still confusion. But they didn't want to ask because they really didn't want it to be the case. They really didn't want it to be the case. They had been conquered time and again by these Romans. They had been oppressed for thousands of years by these neighboring false gods. Did they really want it to be true that God's salvation was going to be extended to the furthest reaches of the earth? In your life, God has given you his will in a way that is unmistakable, which is to save the lost. The question is, have we taken people outside of the category of those deserving saving? Because we're afraid it might actually work. In your life, there might be a group of people that you need to go to or individuals that you need to go to and say, the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and he compels me to love you as well. And I don't know how to love you. I don't know how to love you. But I need to find a way to love you because that's what Jesus has taught me how to do because he died for me out of love when I was his enemy. And even though you're my enemy, I am going to love you. Who might that be in your life? I don't know. Maybe it's me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm secretly all your enemy and you've not told me, but now's the time. Okay, that's fine. We can work it out. Maybe it's some family that you're now cast off from or that you have cast off for one reason or another. Maybe you're going to be waiting in line to vote on Tuesday and you're going to ask somebody, hey, you're a Republican or a Democrat, and depending on their answer, you need to say to them, listen, I have to love you. I have to love you. I don't know how right now. I wish you hadn't shown up today, maybe. But I have to love you. Teach me how to love you, Lord God. So that's the second kind of fear that I mentioned, which is the fear of knowing the will of God or seeing God's plan unveiled, but not wanting to pursue it because you see the outcome and you don't want it to be the case. The first kind of fear is the one that I think we understand a little bit more easily, which is God telling us what his will is going to be and us wanting something different for our lives or us thinking that we ought to do something different with our lives or us already having a will in place that we want to pursue because that will is going to arrive in an outcome that we want to see, but Jesus actually has an entirely different outcome in mind for you. I think this is the broader fear that the, that the disciples would have understood right from the get-go. They said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They're like, great. He says, the kingdom of heaven is here. They're like, great. It says, you repent and believe. Great, we're with you, Jesus. And I'm going to go die. Okay, what? That was not in the plan. And anyone who follows me takes up their cross. Remember, I told you, an instrument, not just of death, but an intense level of cruelty and punishment and torture take up their cross daily and follow after me. Now, hold on a second, Jesus. We were with you with the fishing. 
We were with you with the preaching of the good news. We're with you with the miracles. We're with you with the power and the majesty and the awe of God. We really liked it when you were on the mountain and you revealed yourself in all your glory and we were able to see it. But now that you're telling us to change our lives, to revolve around your will for us, I don't know. And they didn't ask him. They didn't follow up. They didn't inquire. It says they were afraid to ask him more. I mentioned this last week when we talked about simple intention versus right intentions. A lot of us have these good intentions or or plans for our lives that we think we're going to pursue. But what God tells us is to seek him first. When we seek him first, he gives us his will. And all of a sudden, we run into the friction of what we wanted and what he wants. And that can be really tough. There's a, a young lady down the hallway that I happen to be married to who told God when she was a teenager she wasn't going to marry anybody who played football because she didn't like football players. Strike one. And she said, I'm never going to marry a pastor. Strike two. I'm right here. We've been married. She's still getting over it. I told God I was only going to marry brunettes. I was a lot more superficial than she is. She at least had some reasoning behind what she wanted. I was like right here on the surface. And I ended up with a blonde. That's a silly example, but it's true in a lot of our lives, isn't it? The book of James would confront this intensely and very directly. If you look at James chapter 4, verse 13... James would say, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yeah, you you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So the fear that we have is that our lives are actually going to change. That God is giving us something that we know we need to do, but we really don't want to do it because we have considered the cost. Jesus and the word of God all throughout will repeat this phrase in some way. You'll you'll hear it said, consider the cost. Be wise in considering what's going to happen. And so God will issue to you, do this. Sometimes it's the generic, do this because the Bible says so. Love people. Sacrifice yourself for others. Give freely as it has been given to you. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Serve selflessly. And we don't do that. And then other times it's a special revelation. Go here and speak to this person. This is what I want you to do today. Open your mouth and accept that I want you to love this person today in whatever way it is. And in either case, whether it's the general revelation or the very specific time that God speaks to you and and reveals his will to you and other people confirm it to you, in those moments, our fear is that we will actually see our lives change if we do them. And the more stuff we have, the more life that we've accumulated, the more goals that we've laid out before ourselves, 
the harder it is every time God calls us to something that isn't our objectives. That's why James continues in the book of James to chapter 5. He says, come now you who are rich and howl and weep for the misery that's coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and they will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. The wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you and he goes on to say be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord you see all this is tied together these things are unified the way that God understands the outcome of those who have pursued the life that is given to us in this earth wholeheartedly their outcome is disaster and punishment why Because they've already achieved all of their objectives. But when you hungrily seek after the Lord, you don't achieve him during this life. He'll give you things to do and then another thing to do and then another thing to do and then another thing to do. And as long as you're hungering after him, you're satisfied. But when you're hungering for achievement, you may achieve those things, but in the end find yourself twice or three times or four times hungrier and more empty than you ever were before because you're lacking God. Because God is missing from your life. It was said once that this earth is the greatest heaven that unbelievers will ever know. And for the believer, this earth is the only hell that we will ever know. Did you ever think about this? For believers that are in this broken world, we are promised an eternity of greater satisfaction than we could ever possibly achieve in the now. But for the unbeliever, for the person that chases after the objectives of this earth and are satisfied with the things of this earth, with their money, with their house or their houses, with their boats, with their fame, with their power, with their winning, whatever it might be, they're achieving their heaven and all that's left for them is the absence of it. And so I bring you back to this reality. That which we fear when it comes to the will of God is foolishness and vanity. Because in the end, the only thing that matters is the will of God. We have set up for ourselves these objectives, these things we want to see, a certain amount of money in the bank account, a certain amount of prestige, a certain size house, a certain kind of clothes, family that looks a certain way, holidays celebrated thusly, power, authority, whatever it might be. If those things are the will of God for your life such that he has revealed to you that you're to have them for his glory, then they're good and they're blessed. 
If God calls you to have power and you wield it with God's authority and you do it wisely, then you are blessed and the Lord will use that for his kingdom. If you're called to be rich, and I've known people that were called to be rich by the power of God to use it for his kingdom, then that's the kind of wealth that will not corrupt you because you know it's God's and it can disappear in a moment. But many of us are not called to be rich. We're not called to be powerful. Paul tells us that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the powerless things, the weak things of the world to shame the powerful so that his glory would be revealed in us. So when you consider God's call on your life, when you consider the will of God in your life, recognize that the fear that you are going to experience when you open your heart to asking God, what do you want me to do with my life? The fear that you're going to experience, whatever flavor it might be, and there could be other flavors. I've only talked about two, right? I've only talked about the fear of us actually following after God and our lives changing and the fear of us actually following after God and other people repenting and coming to know Jesus. There could be all sorts of different reasons for the fear that the disciples experience, but know that the only way to overcome those fears is to solidify your walk towards Christ, to return back to that same simple intention that we started with. God is God and there is no other and therefore his will is going to happen, not might happen, but is. And if you run from his will, there could very well be punishment involved. Your life could actually be more miserable if you run from God than if you run to God, even if that involves some sort of misery in the moment. When we were called to this church, and some of you know this story, some of you don't. My DS, I had called my district superintendent and I said, hey, I'm thinking about helping this other church in Raleigh that needs help. I, you know, I, I get bored easily. So I was like, I got time on my hands. Maybe it's the Lord's will that I help out this other church. And he said, so you're thinking about being a senior pastor, are you? And I said, no. And he said, great. I'm glad to hear that. I have a church in Winston-Salem that you should apply to and go talk with about being their pastor. And I said, great, I'll pray about it. And I went to my wife and I said, oh, I got this thing and it's Winston and we don't want to go to Winston. The only thing that ever came out of Winston was cigarettes and donuts. <laughs> like, who wants to go to Winston? And my wife said, you need to pray about this. And I was like, what, you too? And then I talked to my mom and I said, Mom, Winston-Salem thing, and you live here in Raleigh, and my in-laws live here in Raleigh, and there's no reason we should leave Raleigh. And she said, she said, if you don't pray about this and go, the Lord is going to punish you. I was like, okay, Mom, all right. Thanks a lot. And we visited here. My wife and I, after I interviewed, I interviewed first, then my wife and I visited here, you will recall. We got in the car immediately after that first service that I preached to you, and we just said, the Lord wants us here. We didn't even talk about it. We didn't even discuss it. We didn't even think about it. 
And since then, over those two years, we've fallen more and more in love with Winston, with this church, with the people of this community, and with you every single day. But you do know if it was my will, Ben Marsh's will, I would still be in Cary. I had a house on its way to being paid off. I had a, a, a cat and a dog that I had just built a, a huge fence for that dog. You know, the first thing I had to do here was build a huge fence for that silly dog of mine. Anybody want to borrow a dog? All of that happened because it was the will of God, and I knew that if I didn't pursue the will of God, that something worse would result. Just to be clear, this was the first category uh, of fear, which is I was afraid of what my life would change and look like. It was not the second category where I was worried that you guys would come to know Jesus, okay? You are not my Nineveh. I just want to be clear. I didn't come over here and then sit under the tree and go, oh, these people, why do you love them so much? Like, that has not happened, I promise. Okay? All right, we're good. In your life right now, God may have given you a specific calling that you've been running from. I don't know. Or he may have just laid out for you in his word the calling that you know you're supposed to pursue, but you're not. And James tells us that anybody who knows the right thing that they're supposed to do and doesn't do it, is sinning. That's a, that's a great verse to memorize out of this sermon. Chapter 4, verse 17 of James. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him is sin. So whichever case it is, whether you know the call of God that you are putting on hold, or you know what he's told you to do in his word, Either which way, if you refuse to do it, there's only one answer to that, which is repentance. Lord God, I have rejected your will for my life. I have rejected your word from my life, which teaches me to love others and to share the gospel and to live a life of self-sacrificial service for others. Now, a great many of you are waiting on the first category of revelation. You're waiting for God to give you a specific calling in your life. And in order to wait for that, you have decided to wait on following God's second category, which is his written word, which has all sorts of specific wills for your life. And so instead of continuing in the faith walk of loving Jesus vibrantly and living out the calling that he has given you, you're kind of waiting around until God tells you exactly what it is that you're supposed to do and you're not going to really get up and do anything until he does it. That's a sin. Because you know what it is you're supposed to do. It's right here. Finally, for us as a church, I say this. When others come to us from within this congregation or even from outside of the congregation and tell us, I believe it's the will of the Lord for you to do this. If it's in agreement with Scripture, 
We as a congregation have to be prepared to respond. We as a people have to be ready to test that with prayer, but not be afraid either that it changes our trajectory or that the people that we want to see saved or don't want to see saved are actually saved. I think of Summit Church in in Raleigh, North Carolina, one of the largest churches in North Carolina. Summit was a church of like three or 400 people when their young new pastor, J.D. Greer, and I encourage you to listen to his sermons online. He's a great preacher. Um, Summit's a great church. began talking with the elders saying, I believe the Lord has led us to sell this building, which was, I think by then, a 150-year-old building, and move into movie theaters to do church. Now, I'm not telling you that. Let's just make sure. (laughs) Pastor Ben's not there right now. But whatever the will of the Lord might be, as your elders pray over it, as you pray over it, If an outsider comes, if our DS calls us and says, I want your church to consider this, are we going to be like the disciples? Jesus says, put it in your heads, I'm going to die. They're like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Or are we going to be ready to test those spirits by the will of God and by the word of God? Lord, make us a people who are both on an individual and on a corporate level prepared, Lord God, to hand over to you what is already yours. Whether it be our things, our families, our homes, where we live, what we do, or even, Lord God, as we considered this morning with the persecuted church, even if you call our very lives, let us be ready. When our young people or our older people come up and say, I'm called to do missions, search with me how to go do that. Let us be prepared to say yes and amen if it is your will and we believe it so. Lord, if you call us to go to family members or to people that we have rejected, that we hate and we despise, in order to proclaim the gospel, would you drive us to do so? And reveal to us, as you did to Jonah, the pain that we will endure if we do not do your will. Let us cast no one outside of your saving grace in our lives. From the beggar on the streets, to the enemies that we have in our lives, to our co-workers or colleagues or family members, whomever it might be. If you call us to speak, and we fail to do so, Lord God, we're deserving of your punishment. And let us repent. And for any of us that are sitting on our hands wondering what you want for our lives and yet neglecting the dusty Bible sitting on the shelf, would you call us to repent right now from that, Lord God? Here we have your revealed will for our lives. Would we open it and seek in it the calling that you've already laid down for each of us to take up our cross and follow after you, Lord Jesus, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do not grow weary in doing good for others, to love because we have been loved. And all the other many revelations of your direct will for us that are in this book. We repent of our ignorance of your will already revealed while we wait for some special will to be revealed.
Let us in all times and all places, Lord God, be prepared. Be prepared to do what you want us to do. Whether we think it's the right thing or not. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Would you stand for our benediction today? It comes out of Jonah. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to you, Lord God. And our vowed sacrifice of thanksgiving, we will pay to God for salvation. Yours and mine and all those yet to come. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Have a wonderful week.